Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're very happy to have Mark Philip Bradley on the show, and we'll be discussing his book, Vietnam at War. My uncle fought in Vietnam. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're very happy to have Mark Philip Bradley on the show, and we'll be discussing his book, Vietnam at War. My uncle fought in Vietnam. He flew fighter bombers there on on many missions to North Vietnam. He would come home on leave and tell us a little bit about what was going on, and he told us that we would win the war and that he would come home safely. He was wrong on the first count and right on the second, but that was about all I knew about the Vietnam War. Since then, I've read a lot of books about it, but none so eye-opening, I think, as Mark Bradley's. Uh, Mark does something quite remarkable. He shows us the war from the Vietnamese perspective. He has mined the archives and read the literature and uh, talk to the Vietnamese themselves. And the war that he presents is very different from the war that I learned about from my uncle. I really enjoyed talking to Mark today, and I think that you will enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Mark. Hi, Marshall. Uh, How are you today? I'm doing just fine. You're very well. And you're up in Madison, you just said. That's right. And is the weather fine there? The weather is really fine here. It's just beautiful. That's good to, good to hear. It's actually quite nice here in uh, Iowa, or as um, a friend of mine calls it, Baja, Minnesota. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I should tell our listeners that we're very happy to have Mark Bradley on the show today, and we'll be discussing his terrific book, Vietnam at War. As I told Mark in the pre-interview, I've studied the Vietnam War for some years. My uncle actually fought in the Vietnam War for several years. And, uh, or as he would say, fought for peace and freedom in the Vietnam War for a few years. And so it has always held a special fascination for me. So it was a real treat to uh, see this book appear in a catalog, Oxford's catalog as it happens, and then uh, get to read it. And I'm sure that you'll enjoy our conversation today. Mark, let me ask you to begin with to say a few words about yourself. Um, Well, I am a professor of history at the University of Chicago, where I teach um, U.S. international history, but also a certain amount of Vietnamese history as well. And where, where maybe you could uh, just tell us where you uh, were born and grew up and that sort of thing. How did you get to history? Well, I grew up in Michael Moore's hometown, which used to be, you know, people would say it was where GM was founded. Now I think Michael Moore is kind of the... <laughs> the way you mark it, but in Flint, Michigan. Um, and, um, you know, went to school there, grew up there. My dad was a professor. Mm-hmm. And 
political scientist who worked on comparative politics and in different parts of the world at different times. But when I was a young kid, he was working on Southeast Asia, on Malaysia and Singapore. And so we spent a good deal of time as a family in Southeast Asia when I was a kid. But, you know, it's one of those things where, in retrospect, you can draw these lines back and say, oh, you know, it was inevitable. You were two years old at Angkor Wat, so you'd write a book about Vietnam. But I didn't pay much attention to Southeast mm-hmm. Asia, really, after after we had been there. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I was uh, an undergraduate at University of Michigan that I kind of started thinking about Southeast Asia again. Um, Michigan has a really good Southeast Asian studies program, and a guy by the name of Vic Lieberman was, uh, and still is, the Southeast Asian. I, I, I know Vic Lieberman a little bit, actually. You know yes, I do. Yeah. Well, Vic did a course on the Vietnam War. Vic was a Burma specialist, but he did this big course on the Vietnam War, and he's just so smart that almost anything he did. I mean, I ended up doing, I think, every course he offered, including a, a seminar on pre-modern Burmese history. And, you know, if you can kind of fall in love with that, you, you, you've got to be a pretty good professor, I think. So I, I always think that Vic was a, a big reason why I kind of moved in that direction. And at some point, I decided that it was Vietnam of the various countries in the region that was most compelling to me, in large measure, I think, because sort of intellectual and artistic and cultural traditions are so kind of rich in Vietnam, and I, and I found that particularly intriguing. So when I was thinking about going to graduate school, you know, the, the sort of options were relatively small at that point about where one could go and study with a Vietnam specialist. Um, but basically, it was Cornell and Harvard. Mm-hmm. Um, I ended up going to um, to Harvard uh, and studying with Huy Tam Ho Tai, who is uh, and was the Vietnamese historian there. And it was a kind of felicitous time to start working on Vietnam because... You know, there were these halting efforts after the war to have some sort of reconciliation and diplomatic relations. You know, went up and down and up and down. Um, But in the late 1980s, the Vietnamese government was at least starting to encourage people to come, um, particularly starting to encourage scholars to come. And Harvard was one of the places that was on their map in terms of, you know, trying to find people who might be interested in coming. So there was a delegation that came through the second year I was in graduate school, and I had lunch with them. And the guy who was the head of the delegation was sitting next to me and said, so would you, you know, like to go to Vietnam for the summer? And mm-hmm. I said, well, sure. Mm-hmm. You know? And again, at the time, it wasn't really very easy to go at all. And he said, well, I could, I could make all this happen. So, you know, you think to yourself, well, can you really? Will you remember? Will there? And sure enough, he, he did make it all happen. So it was the summer, I think, of 89, which was the first time that I was in, Viet, in, in Vietnam and largely in Hanoi uh, in the north. And, you know, it was still a kind of high socialist place at that point. The economic reforms had come in 86, so, you know, things had changed a little, but not nearly, you know, in the ways that they started to accelerate uh, in the 90s and, and more recently. So it was in some ways for me just this totally fascinating kind of frozen-in-time socialist place, you know. So in addition to being able to do a little bit of research and a lot of interviews at that point and then trying to figure out, you know, what I could do kind of for a longer sort of dissertation research, it was, again, just to kind of be in this place that now is gone. You know, Hanoi is a totally different place. And 
you know, the reforms really have fundamentally changed people's lives, I think. But mm-hmm. to kind of see that sort of late last glimpse of what late socialism looked like was um, helpful for me for a variety of reasons. And I think helped in some ways in writing both my first book and, and this book to, again, have a sense about what the texture of that moment looked like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I had a similar sort of experience. I went to the Soviet Union for the first time in 1983, I guess, 84. Uh-huh. And I got to see, I guess what I'd call low socialism uh, at the time. And I, I amazed my students by explaining to them that I lived under communism. Um, but it was, it, is extre- it was extremely helpful for me to, to see that place. It really opened my eyes. I, I didn't really have a good impression of what such places were like. Um, and it also informed my, my understanding of the Russians who had, mm-hmm. who had um, I guess one would say, gone through this period and now have I hope, hopefully emerged uh, uh, healthy on the other side of it, as I hope the Vietnamese have as well. Um, uh, let's talk just a little bit about the genesis of this book. How did you come to write it? Well, you know, I think there were really sort of two things behind writing this book. I mean, first was the Iraq War and kind of the unbelievability that this could all seemingly happen again. I mean, I, I think in retrospect it was naive, but I guess as I've been studying Vietnam and Vietnamese history, particularly in the post-45 period over the last 20-odd years, however dumb American policy could be toward Vietnam, and it often was, somehow I just fundamentally believed it would never happen again Mm -hmm. in quite the same way. And, And there it was happening again. And not only happening again, but also realizing that, you know, during the Vietnam War, people didn't know much of anything about Vietnam as a place. Right, other than as a sort of site of an American Cold War. Mm-hmm. And it, it struck me that the same thing was really true with the Iraq War as well. You know, I mean, people know a little bit about Saddam Hussein, but, you know, very few people could tell you the sort of contours of 20th century Iraqi history in any more than a kind of rudimentary way. So, you know, that, that sort of thing, again, seemed very sharp to me. And then as I thought about that, I also thought about the fact that during the war itself, probably the most important book that emerged that did try to tell a kind of story about Vietnam as a place and put what was going on in a kind of larger context for the Vietnamese was Francis Fitzgerald's book, uh, Fire in the Lake, Mm -hmm. which, you know, had a huge audience and I think won various, I think it was a Pulitzer Prize winning book, but, you know, every sort of liberal left, right thinking person, I think, at least had it sitting on their coffee table if they hadn't indeed read it. And I realized that, you know, nobody, that book is almost 40 years old, and no one had kind of come back to that larger sort of framework in trying to think, what might that war have been about if it wasn't just an American Cold War intervention? Mm-hmm. And when Francis Fitzgerald wrote her book, I mean, there were not a lot of models or historians that she could turn to in trying to kind of construct a sort of narrative. And the person she relied most on was a French scholar named Paul Muse, a very distinguished scholar of Vietnamese history, but also modern Southeast Asian history and pre-modern Southeast Asian history more generally. But forever, for whatever Muse's strengths, he did have a kind of traditionalist orientalist frame in thinking about the Vietnamese, and one that also saw Vietnam as a kind of little China. And so 
Fitzgerald borrowed an awful lot of her, sort of, again, larger interpretive framework from Muse, and much of the way Fire in the Lake reads is that there's a kind of transformation of a mandate of heaven going on in Vietnam, and that's what Ho Chi Minh and the communists were assuming. You know, the sort of American-sponsored South Vietnamese leaders were not up to that kind of thing, and that, that ultimately that helped to understand what this sort of larger social and political transformation was about. Well, you know, 40 years on, very few people in Vietnamese history see that as a kind of plausible model for understanding what the Vietnamese were about. For one, it's derivative of a Chinese case, and whether it really would make sense in a Chinese case, even so, I don't know. But there's been, again, if during the war there wasn't much scholarship around, since the war there has been a kind of accelerating group of people here in France and in Australia who work on Vietnamese history, Vietnamese anthropology, Vietnamese literature and culture, and that sort of thing, of which my work in part has been um, in that kind of mix. Mm -hmm. So it seemed like an opportunity to think about where all that work went. I mean, a whole series of, you know, relatively narrowly focused monographs, but when you thought about them collectively, how could they help us think, perhaps in somewhat different ways, but trying to think more capaciously about again, where the war fit into a kind of larger sweep of the last hundred years of Vietnamese history. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I wanted to ask you about the historiography. Um, when I en uh, first encountered it, uh, there were, a, uh, this was shortly after the Vietnam War ended uh, for the United States, I guess I should say, um, uh, there was, a, there was a, a kind of attempt to understand and, um, well, understand the war, but also to... Uh, in certain ways, justify it. There was a kind of uh, revisionism, and there were many, many books that came out, and I read some of them um, that said various things about uh, how things might have gone better. Did that historiography influence you at all? It's still widely read. Yeah, I mean, you know, it seems to me that from a, a more sort of political standpoint, in terms of you know the way the writings have gone about Vietnam, there was, on the left, you know, a great opposition to American policy. But in terms of thinking about the war itself, the left tended to, you know, romanticize the National Liberation Front, kind of romanticize the Vietnamese communists in trying to make a series of claims and critiques about what the Americans were doing. So in some ways, what they had to say about Vietnamese realities on the ground were not all that reliable. And again, as I think people have been doing, you know, work farther removed in time, you know, that kind of romanticization falls apart quite quickly. Mm -hmm. But on the other side, you know, the same problems occur. And, and for me, those problems are, are kind of more troubling in certain ways because I think they've also come to influence my recent policy as well. But, you know, it's this notion of one, uh, Vietnam was a necessary war. And the other part of it is that it was also a winnable war. Right? Mm -hmm. so, I mean, those tend to be the two components of this revisionist idea. That would be Michael uh, Lynn on the one hand, and uh, I guess his name is Mark Moyer on the other, if I yeah, recall the book correctly. That's, yeah. that's right. Those would be two of the most recent sort of iterations of that, um, that kind of position. Um, again, it's a position that largely you know, is put forward by people who don't have much engagement in 
of Vietnamese history at all often don't read or speak Vietnamese and so couldn't be using Vietnamese sources at all. So it, you know, it, it tends to have a kind of circularity in terms of the argument, but it, you know, is very reliant on the American side. So they have to make a certain amount of assumptions, particularly on the we could have won side of it. But without really understanding what's going on in Vietnam at the time, those assumptions seem quite dubious to me. Therefore, you know, it, whatever tactics, I mean, their argument is, you know, the press sort of sold presidents out, the liberal Congress, you know, had hands tied behind their backs, presidents watched, uh, you know, generals too carefully, and that somehow if all those things had been different, well, it might have all gone differently. But again, there's certain kind of Vietnamese realities on the ground that whatever was going on in the American side seemed to me to suggest that those arguments are questionable in mm -hmm. one form or another. And again, no engagement on the whole by most of those writers directly in Vietnamese language materials to be able to, you know, I sort of test some of those hypotheses mm -hmm. like Let's talk a little bit about the sources themselves in addition to the, um, I guess what I'd say is the Vietnamese historiography. H how have the Vietnamese themselves um, written the history of the war? Are there valuable mm, treatments that meet, I guess I would say, our professional standards in Vietnamese by the Vietnamese? Well, that's that's a really complicated. I don't want to, I don't want to get you in any trouble here. <laughs> no, 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 no. Not trouble particularly. In you know, it's a funny situation in Vietnam right now because whatever these market economic reforms have brought in certain sectors of society, places that are, you know, still controlled by the state remain very much controlled by the state. And certainly the system of higher education is, despite a kind of proliferation of various private universities, but, you know, historians are quite constrained and continue to be quite constrained about the ways in which they write about a variety of things. And the closer to the present they get, the more constrained they are. So I remember, yeah, this was maybe five or six years ago, in Hanoi talking to some younger historians. And they were telling me that you don't have all that much choice about the period of time you end up working on. It gets sort of divvied out to you in, in one way or another. And they were saying, you know, the absolute kiss of death was to be assigned to the post-45 period because everybody knew you couldn't really write in any kind of original sustained way, that there were real constrictors on the kind of story you would tell, which basically would need to reflect this kind of public master narrative that the state has given about the war for a long time. So everybody was hoping against hope that they would end up as kind of medieval or pre-modern Vietnamese historians because there the state wasn't as concerned <laughs> about what was going on. And the conversation really does map onto the historiography. The most interesting Vietnamese history that's written in Vietnam by Vietnamese scholars is about the pre-modern period, um, to some extent the colonial period, but particularly the early pre-modern period. And the post-45 period, it's still... You know, there are always some exceptions, but it still takes on, again, this very kind of official cast. So if you're looking for Vietnamese who are writing in interesting ways about the wartime period or the early post-war period, it's in fiction and it's in film that one sees it most. There was a kind of liberalization post-86 in the arts. And it was a kind of short moment. I mean, it got clamped down on at a certain point. 
uh, people were writing a series of novels that have become relatively well-known here, I think, in translation. Uh, novels like Banning's The Sorrow of War or Zunterhung's Novel Without a Name that really upend the kind of official state narrative of you know patriotic, self-sacrificing resistance of people. And they're generally veterans themselves who are writing this kind of fiction. And it's closer in sensibility to, you know, Tim O'Brien's kind of stuff about mm-hmm. the American side of the war than, you know, again, this sort of state narrative. There's some really fascinating films that emerge in this period of time, but they, alas, have never really made it to the West and, you know, aren't easily available with subtitles and that kind of thing. So I think it's the fiction that for listeners, at least, would be the more accessible way to see, see that. So again, that, that kind of opening up has happened. Um, but in a more in the more strictly historical profession, always, as I say, with a, you know some exceptions, um, there isn't that much that's being written in an interesting way about the war, and it gets reflected too, I think, in courses. I mean, almost all students at the secondary level do a course that deals with the war, and anecdotally, at least, most students find it just dreadfully boring because, again, it's presented in a very kind of unidimensional sort of way. And this is a moment when more than 60% of the Vietnamese population is under 21 years old. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the, the majority of people didn't live through any of this at all and don't seem to be particularly inspired to know more about it, at least from what they're learning about it in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the parallels with Soviet historiography are uh, remarkably close. I, I could repeat everything you just said and replace Vietnam with uh, uh, the Soviet right? Union and Russia. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. The, the most interesting... Uh, work done by Soviet historians was always uh, pre-1917. They also, I think, thought that, uh, well, actually studying post-1917 was a trajectory on a certain kind of career. It wasn't one that, I guess I would say, free-thinking historians generally wanted. Uh, I I was a medievalist and early modernist myself, so I uh, had uh, most of my um, most of my colleagues were medievalists and early modernists, and, and they they explained that that you know that the textbooks weren't exactly written by historians as far as they dealt with the post-1917 period. And also, I would say, additionally, that modern Russians, young Russians, are not terribly interested in the Soviet Union or um, World War II or the the Cold War. Mm-hmm. They, they've they've sort of moved on beyond that. And and I would also add, and I don't know if this is true in the Vietnamese case, but um, even now that there's been an intense kind of liberalization of the historical profession in the Soviet Union, um, it, it, uh, the historiography that's been produced about the Soviet Union has not been um, very satisfying. It, it tends to focus on um, murderers and the murdered, if you know what I mean. Uh, and I guess I would predict a similar sort of thing if, uh, if, um, if that kind of liberalization ever comes to pass in, in Vietnam. But let's talk a little bit about the sources themselves. Did, did you, so you had access to um, North Vietnamese and Viet Minh and Viet Cong archives? And, and what were those archives well, like? You know, yes and no is, is the response to that. And I, you know, I think part of the problem about Vietnamese historiography is Vietnamese historians operate under many of the same constraints as, you know, scholars from the West do as well. So, you know, the archival situation in Vietnam, I think from the, you know, the little I know of the Russian case, that it's much more like the Chinese case than the Russian case. You know, at least in the Russian case, there were moments of openness, even if things, you Mm -hmm. know, open, close, 
is, you know, and there's a kind of vacillation. The, the willingness to open in Vietnam, uh, depending on the issue, has has been a real problem over time and hasn't changed an awful lot over at least the 20 years that I've been, you know, dealing with it. With issues of sort of high diplomacy, you know, or issues at, mm-hmm. at the sort of highest levels of the party, mm-hmm. that stuff's just not open. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's going to be for a long time, despite, mm-hmm. you know, sort of promises that, oh, yes, yes, we're getting to that. But, you know, 20 years is a long time to, to, to not really get to it. And, you know, some of the arguments that various people in research institutes in Hanoi make do make some sense to me. I mean, it is less, perhaps, the relationship with the United States that they're concerned about than the relationship with China. Mm-hmm. And there are, I would guess, are incendiary things within, you know, the foreign ministry and party archives dealing with um, Sino-Vietnamese relations. And, you know, they're a little country and they worry about that. And I think that's real. You know, so that, that part of the argument I, I can accept to a certain extent, I think. But the rest of it is just a general kind of unwillingness to open up that sort of thing at all. So mm-hmm. at that level, you can see published compilations of documents similar to what's been produced in China over, again, the last couple of decades. But somebody's choosing those quite carefully, and the chances of them you know, putting things in a kind of different light than the party would like are, are not all that great. Um, now, on other issues, things have gradually opened up quite a good deal. So in the North, for instance, much of the archives from the 50s from the Ministry of Interior are open. And, and for people who are listening who aren't sort of connected that much to the communist world, but Ministry of Interior isn't like the National Park Service, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know from the Russian case. Yeah. They, they're everywhere in, in one form or another um, in, in what's going on in society. And a surprising amount of that stuff has opened up over the last, again, 10 years maybe, which is just fascinating, you know, in terms of not just what people were thinking at the center, but also the kind of reporting that's coming in from provinces and the local level about various contestations in the 1950s about trying to, particularly post-54 in the French world, trying to engineer some sort of socialist transformation in the North. So that kind of stuff is great. In the South, gradually, the regime has been willing to open up archival material from um, the South Vietnamese state. So one can look at the materials from the Baudai government. Uh, they can look, to some extent, at materials from the ZM government, and even into the 1960s as well. And this is not, you know, everything's not open, and, you know, things come and go, but there is a huge density of materials there that I think ultimately are, are going to allow scholars to really fundamentally rethink, you know, the ways in which uh, the Southern regime worked. Then... There are, you know, interviews, I think, become quite important. They're tricky, you know, because you're not often on very sort of solid empirical archival ground as you're, as you're talking to people. But, um, in, in, in many ways, those conversations, and not just interviews with sort of actors from the time, but also many of the sort of researchers, historians connected to these, uh, issues, I and mean, they've been around for a long time, too. And so 
they would sometimes tell me stories that then, I mean, for Vietnamese scholars, the other place to go is France, you know, and the, the French archives are very rich. The French, being the French, every book that was published in Vietnam during the colonial period and through into the French War, a copy was sent to the Bibliothèque Nationale. Mm-hmm. A lot of those books were destroyed in Vietnam over the course of the wartime period. And so, you know, the, the sort of most complete collection of published Vietnamese language stuff from the entire colonial period really sits in Paris. And then there are the colonial archives in Vincennes, um, or excuse me, in Aix-en-Provence, the military archives that are in Vincennes. And there's a the French, when they left in '54, also brought a certain amount of Vietnamese language stuff that they had taken from the Ho Chi Minh government. So, you know, you, people could tell you stories that sometimes seem very intriguing, and then in, in part it really was possible to trace out some of those stories using either French materials or Vietnamese language materials that were in France. And then the other layer of it is that there are some provincial archives in Vietnam, and this is a real parallel to the Chinese case, too, that are opening up. And again, this is much more recent, but with potentially really, really interesting stuff. And sometimes, you know, they're getting stuff from the center, right, that are being preserved in those archives as well. So it's a kind of, you know, sort of of triangulation sort of approach. So, you know, the archival picture is very mixed. But there's enough, and there's more and more that allow people to write in really rich ways. And beyond the archival stuff, you know, the, the printed materials, whether it's political tracts, whether it's you know literature or you know whatever, there just aren't that many people studying Vietnamese history or haven't been studying Vietnamese mm-hmm. history over a long time. So again, in moving through that material and asking you know a whole variety of questions about that has begun to transform, I think, the way in which people are thinking about particularly the colonial and the sort of French war period. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, well, uh, it, it sounds like quite a uh, challenge, I, I would say, to, to do history in this environment. I think you've done a terrific job of it. Let's shift our focus to the book itself, and, and let me ask you to um, simply begin the story uh, with... Um, and this is something I'm always interested in as kind of a historian of international communism. We know the French were there um, and had set up a colonial regime, but uh, how did um, communism get to Vietnam? Well, um, in several ways. Um, you know, Ho Chi Minh in some ways is a really crucial figure for understanding where Vietnamese communism comes from. On the other hand, you know, this sort of great men of history approach that one can just lay it on Ho Chi Minh, and I think too often that's the way the literature is gone, ignores the way in which, you know, it emerges in, in, in more complex directions, too, and the fact that it becomes as factionalized as quickly as it does, you know, once it begins to light in. But, you know, to start with Ho Chi Minh, at least, because even if that story needs to not be the primary one, it's still a story that needs to be told. You know, Ho Chi Minh famously goes to uh, the Paris Peace Conference in 1919 at the end of World War II. And he's, at that point, been on a kind of personal odyssey around the world, really, because he's expelled from Vietnam in 1911, and he's in 
Africa for a brief period of time. He's in the Mediterranean for a brief period of time. He's reportedly in the United States for a brief period of time. There seems to be some stuff in the French security files that suggests that, in fact, that really was so. Uh, but anyway, he finally finds himself back in Paris in 1919, where there are a group of expatriate anti-colonial Vietnamese, not communists, and sort of senior people within the kind of anti-colonial movement. And they put together this petition that they want to give to Woodrow Wilson at the peace conference. And these Vietnamese aren't the only people who are at Paris trying to do the same thing. There's you know, a number of people from the colonized world who are trying to kind of make good on promises of self-determination. But, you know, Wilson doesn't have a lot of time for the Vietnamese or any of these anti-colonial actors who have come. And, you know, essentially, Ho's petition and those of others uh, is simply ignored. And he moves quite quickly from that very, you know, kind of moderate reformist set of demands, really, in that petition, to becoming a founding member of the French Communist Party in the early 1920s. And that's when he begins to become really enmeshed in ways that very few people in Vietnam, other than him, are in the kind of international communist movement. So he's in... France for a time, he's in the Soviet Union for a time, uh, he's sent to China as a kind of organizer in China, and it's in China, particularly in southern China, where he begins to form um, a, what becomes a precursor to the Vietnamese Communist Party. And so at that point, there in Vietnam itself, the 1920s is really a kind of radicalization of uh, the anti-communist movement, or excuse me, the anti-colonial movement. Um, uh, there's a kind of passing of the generations in the mid-1920s from, again, a, a really older, almost kind of neo-Confucian anti-colonialist to, again, young radicals, and really young, you know, high school students and university students in age. And there's just, they're talking about all kinds of ways of seeing the world, and some of them are influenced by what they learn about uh, communism, again, largely through Chinese sources. But you know, socialism, you know, sort of radical republics. I mean, people are talking about all kinds of things. How brings a small group of these kind of young student radicals into southern China, and they form this youth movement um, that, again, is trying, that, that essentially is introducing a kind of Marxist-Leninist organizational and ideological way of thinking about the kind of predicament of colonialism. And those people that Ho Chi Minh brings with him into southern China become really the nucleus of the Vietnamese Communist Party, at least in the post-45 period. So Von Nguyen Zop, who's the famous general who defeats uh, the French at the Battle of Dien Bien Sơ in 1954, he's one of them. Phan Van Dong, who will be the prime minister of uh, the North uh, is is one of these figures, Trung Chin, um, who becomes the kind of cultural czar in the North after uh, 1945, is another of these. But Trung Chin is an interesting figure, again, to give people a sense of the sort of Chinese dimensions of this. Uh, these are all often revolutionary pseudonyms that people take. Trung Chin mm -hmm. is his given name. Trung Chin literally translates as the Long March. So, you know, clearly here somebody quite influenced by a set of developments in China, right, more mm -hmm. than in Europe or the Soviet Union. So that's, that youth organization 
is what eventually, you know, by the end of the 1920s, becomes transformed into a kind of Vietnamese Communist Party and then an Indo-Chinese Communist Party. But that story isn't to suggest that there aren't a number of actors in Vietnam itself who are turning to radicalism in a variety of forms, and in some cases to communism and socialism, particularly down south. These people, the circuit is really from southern Vietnam to France. You know, they're sent there by parents for their education. I mean, there's a variety of reasons why people end up there. But it's often, it, I mean, the, the irony about most of the Vietnamese communists is they come from quite elite families. And that, that's certainly true of many of the southerners, at least in this early period of time. So, you know, there is a kind of transnational circulation of young Vietnamese into France coming back with a variety of radical ideas. And so in the 30s, which turns out to be a kind of nadir in some ways for the communist movement, there are all these kind of, you know, struggles between kind of rival factions and parties and, you know, those sort of Trotsky-Stalinist debates that are playing out in Europe are also playing out in, in Vietnam in, in particular ways. And, and the whole thing, partially because of these sorts of fighting and partially because there's just really, really harsh French repression against the communists in the early 1930s that, that, that things really don't go well. For a while, and then the Popular Front comes in the late 1930s, and that tends to kind of reinvigorate in mm -hmm. some way the communist movement uh, in Vietnam, mm -hmm. and gives them at least some kind of position of strength as they're moving into the World War II period. Although, if anybody had to predict in 1939 that in 1945, you know, Ho Chi Minh would be forming what would be largely a communist government, nobody would have predicted that. So, so. Were, yeah, why don't you they tell, were on the margins, you know. Yeah, I was going to say, why don't, why don't you tell us exactly how that transpired through this uh, sort of series of much of history is a result of um, accidents and unfortunate events and uh, uh, misunderstandings. Yeah. And how, how did he, uh, did they so quickly um, um, rise to power? Well, I mean, there are a couple of answers to that question. I mean, one is the, the Japanese come in to... Um, Vietnam during the World War II period, and, and well, there's a you know it's a Vichy regime that's the colonial power during World War II, and quite quickly um, the Japanese take essential control of Vietnam, but allow the French to sort of rule the Vichy French to rule for them, which people argue, and I, I think there's much to this that there is a kind of psychological dislocation there, you know, that the French seem less powerful than they did in the past. And I think in real terms, they're less powerful. And the sort of reach of the French security apparatus is, is less, perhaps, than it has been in the period before. So the, the Japanese occupation in Vietnam, and not just in Vietnam, really throughout Southeast Asia, is one of the kind of tilting points, I think, for anti-colonial movements, not just in Vietnam, but in Burma, in Indonesia, you know, in, in a variety of places. So, so that's happening. Um, their potential rivals during World War II are generally weak and generally unable to either craft a message that moves beyond a kind of elite framework or to craft a message that moves beyond a kind of regional framework. So there are some powerful religious groups in the South, like the Kadai and the Wahau, who are not just religious groups but political groups as well. They have militia. 
but they're regional. You know, there are particular places in the South where they are very, very strong, but there's no kind of super regional message that emerges there. The Vietnamese communists, on the other hand, you know, sort of have a kind of favorable climate if they can take advantage of it, and they do. And in the North, there, this is the moment where, you know, sort of training militia to fight guerrilla warfare happens for the first time. This is also a moment where they make a conscious effort to downplay socialism and play up nationalism. So, you know, the message is a coalition. It's the Viet Minh, not the Vietnamese communists, who are going to come to power. That's a message that resonates well with people. Um, and that they start with, you know, a kind of Maoist model that they're consciously drawing on of building revolutionary base areas in the very far north of northern Vietnam working at first really with largely non-ethnic Vietnamese minority groups who are living there, establishing those base areas, and then slowly moving down into the Red River Delta. You know, as the war is increasingly going against the Japanese, that gets easier and easier to do. But in this kind of, you know, historical accident sort of thing, the Japanese in March of 1945 stage a coup against the French, and, and simply sweep the French out of power. So at that point, no longer are the French ruling for them. They're just out. So there's a huge power vacuum in Vietnam as a result of that. And the, and the, the Japanese try to put in a kind of little puppet government, you know, in of Vietnamese that doesn't go anywhere at all. And it's really in that vacuum of power between that coup in March and then late August, which is the moment of what's called the August Revolution, that the Vietnamese communists are able to take advantage of the kinds of building that they've been doing during the wartime and really turn that into, again, in a, in a pretty short period of time, um, a very, very strong popular movement. So, you know, the, that famous day on the 2nd of September, 1945, suddenly there's Ho Chi Minh in this central square in Hanoi in front of, you know, 500,000 people proclaiming Vietnam free of French colonial rule. I, again, that, that was pretty unlikely in 1939. Mm -hmm. It was even maybe unlikely in, in January of 1945. But there's something about that moment after March of 45, not just the historical moment itself, but the ways in which they're able to capitalize on what that enables that really are what brings him into Hanoi mm -hmm. in that kind of way. What, what did he expect would happen after he declared uh, an independent Vietnam, and what did happen? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, there, we don't, a lot of stuff about Ho, you know, is in the realm of myth. And, I mean, if, if there's anything that you can't see, you know, sort of detailed archival material about, it's about him, you know, and his, and his policies. Um, so, you know, you, you put it together in bits and pieces. But I think, you know, as people see it at least now, that there was, a willingness on his part, although perhaps not necessarily shared fully within the party, of continuing to downplay socialism and to play up nationalism. And in that sense, in trying to build coalitions in those first months in power with particularly the United States, um, you know, recognizing that the United States was the power on the scene, that the British power was waning, although there are efforts to try to court the British as well that don't go very far. Um, but a kind of genuine effort, I think, to cultivate the Americans. And that's accelerated by um, the OSS, which is the precursor to the CIA, mm -hmm. have a mission in Vietnam. Uh, they do throughout 
much of World War II, but it kind of expands in that sort of March to August period. And they're not there to help Ho Chi Minh. They're there to oversee the surrender of the Japanese. But they become connected to Ho's regime. And there's a guy with a wonderful name who runs the kind of Hanoi office of the LSS. His name is Archimedes Patty. Mm-hmm. And he gets to know Ho Chi Minh quite well. And in fact, when Ho Chi Minh gives this speech on September 2nd, it opens with the American Declaration of Independence. And he apparently goes to see Patty the night before to just kind of check whether, you know, he's got the text right. So, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, there, there's, there's a relationship there. The Vietnamese seem to kind of over... to make more of it than it really is. And I, and I think Patty may have, you know, intentionally or unintentionally led them to think that too. So that they really think, you know, there may be something there with the Americans. So right after September of 45, you know, Ho fires off a whole series of cables to Harry Truman asking for uh, American support, asking for American mediation with what's emerging as, you know, a French interest in coming back to Vietnam. And it's just like uh, Woodrow Wilson, there's never any response from Truman to that. Interestingly enough, in Soviet archives over the last uh, 10 odd years, is people have found the cables that Ho Chi Minh was writing to Stalin in that same period of time. And, and I don't read Russian, so I have to rely on you know people translating those. But oddly enough, word for word, they're almost exactly the same as the cables he was sending to Truman. Mm. You know, I mean, he, he manages to get Stalin's name in and not Truman. But but what he's asking for and the words that he's using to ask for those things are, are almost identical. And Stalin's not paying any attention either. So, you know, there's a, an immediate kind of isolation that the regime is facing, not just from the United States, but from the international communist world as well. The French Communist Party isn't very keen, really, on helping in that period at all. But they're very much, despite these efforts to look outward, um, at the highest levels, very much on their own in certain ways as the, as the French war emerges in, you know, 46 and 47. How does the French war emerge? The French decide that they want Vietnam back, I guess. Yeah, the French do decide that they want Vietnam back. They don't see any reason why they can't come back in. And um, they're, they're particular. I mean, that's a puzzling, you know, I still don't know that I fully understand why that's so. I mean, they're, they're most interested in getting southern Vietnam back. And, you know, that that's the... the to the extent that the French did well economically out of their colonial project in Vietnam, and sometimes they did and sometimes they didn't, you know, they, they saw the riches as being in, in the South. So the, the efforts and the early sort of tensions emerge most fully there. And the British are the ones, Vietnam gets divided, as, as so many places do right after the war, in terms of who's occupying what and taking the surrender, you know, of... Japanese forces, and the British are occupying the South, the Nationalist Chinese are occupying the North. And the Nationalist Chinese were a problem for the Ho Chi Minh regime, but ultimately were more sympathetic to what it was he was doing. The British are not sympathetic at all, and the commander in the South especially unsympathetic. And so the British are in some ways permitting a kind of return of French soldiers slowly in late 45 and 46, that, that starts to give the French, you know, a kind of presence on the ground. Um, 
And then a whole series of diplomatic negotiations go on between the Ho Chi Minh government and the French over future status, short of war. And, you know, would there would there be a way of having some sort of federal union and that the French would ultimately give them independence? Could there be an independent north and center, but there would be a kind of republic of the south for some period of time? And these are things that are floating back and forth in a whole series of conferences in Vietnam and in France um, involving Ho and others in his regime and the French. But ultimately, the French push more and more, you know, to, again, take taking Vietnam back. And those pressures are hard to understand. I mean, the, the pressures are strong from French colons in, in the South, for mm-hmm. sure. The pressures are strong from some in the French military. Um, again, some on the ground in Vietnam, some back in Paris. Whether there's a gen- more general sense with the French, you know, World War II didn't go all that well. You know, the <laughs> colonies were, you know, still a way of kind of reestablishing a sort of sense of, you know, a, a larger French presence mm-hmm. in the world may, may be a part of it. But these these negotiations turn from negotiations to really just a, a kind of, you know, ugly series of exchanges back and forth. And by the time you get to mid-46 and the fall of 46, it, it begins to look almost inevitable that there'll be some sort of conflict. And, and the skirmishes start to emerge on the ground between French soldiers and the Vietnamese as well. Mm-hmm. And some would argue that, in fact, the war, I mean, the war really breaks out at the end of 46 in a formal kind of way in Hanoi. But some would argue that the war had already begun months before that, particularly down south, because, again, that's where the density of French troops are because the British have let them be there, and that they're, it's not called a war, but the level of skirmishing between Vietnamese forces and the French is, is very, very intense. You know, it's that moment where when do you decide a war is a war, I guess, but in the sort of classic, the war begins kind of way, it's, it's often accorded to uh, in December of 1946. Mm-hmm. By that point, there, mm-hmm. there is war. Uh, who were the French fighting at that point? Within uh, the Viet Minh had been established, and the um, the 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 I forget what it's called the uh, the, the the popular army of South Vietnam. I, I don't remember what it's called. But were they fighting North Vietnamese forces or or militia, Southern um, Vietnamese well, militia? Well, I mean, you know, the Viet Minh movement is not just a Northern movement; it's a movement in yep. the center and in the South as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're 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 essentially fighting the Viet Minh in the South. There, Ho Chi Minh, you know, is trying to establish a, a new government throughout Vietnam, but really, practically speaking, in the north and north center of Vietnam, uh, and having a hard time, right? I mean, these are not very felicitous circumstances under which to establish a new post-colonial state. I mean, you're getting no help from the outside at all anywhere, and you're, you're under this enormous pressure from, from the French. But, yeah, it's, I mean... And they're fighting the Viet Minh, largely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, again, the South is always more fractious. So, you know, these religious groupings that have militia, like the Kadai and Pahau, they're sometimes allies of the French, but sometimes allies of the Viet Minh. They're sometimes sort of independent actors. So they, there's a level of chaos that's also going on in the South that's a, a little bit different than mm-hmm. the North. Mm-hmm. Take, take us through the war, the French war, really quickly. Okay. Um, well, I think the hardest thing initially is the isolation. You know, that once a formal war has broken out, 
the Vietnamese don't have initially any alliance. They try to continue to cultivate a relationship with the United States, and they do this largely through diplomatic representatives in uh, Bangkok and Rangoon. And they're also trying to cultivate a relationship with um, with uh, Moscow as well. But not all that much comes of it. So the initial years of the war, they're on their own in in sort of uh, you know figuring out where they're going to get arms, how they're going to make arms, how they're going to be you know, fighting. And the French initially are pretty successful at taking major cities. So initially things go quite badly. But then as things move out into the countryside, the French start to have more trouble. So they even by the sort of late 40s, a couple years into the war, it isn't a stalemate, and certainly it isn't moving in the Vietnamese's direction, but it's kind of amazing that they're able to hold their own as long as they are, given how little support they're getting. Then the fall of China really starts to kind of change the calculus, um, so that now there's an entirely friendly regime that you know has shares a contiguous border with the North, and the Vietnamese and the Chinese quite quickly form an informal set of relations, and that gets codified in, um, in early 1950. And the Russians and the Chinese both, for the first time, formally uh, extend diplomatic recognition to his government. The Russians reluctantly, apparently, I mean, pushed into it by the Chinese, but the Chinese are very, very keen. And that's what really turns a colonial war into the Cold War. Because it's at that point that the Americans, who have kind of dithered about what to do with the whole thing, much more wholeheartedly, although always skeptically about French intentions and French abilities, come to support essentially 80% of the cost of the French war by its end in 1954. But the Vietnamese are relying increasingly on Chinese advisors and Chinese military assistance of one sort or another, in, in their own war effort. Now, there's always a huge disparity between what the Americans are giving the French and what the Chinese are giving to the Vietnamese, and a big disparity. But nonetheless, this colonial war has now become you know, a part of a larger Cold War conflict. Um, and the sort of turning of the tide in some ways comes maybe in 52 or 53, there's a kind of gradual war weariness, I think, on the French side that's underlying some of that. The Vietnamese, uh, you know, increasingly are sharper in terms of tactics and strategy. And this decision gets made to, you know, in a sense, use this battle of Dien Bien Phu as a, as a kind of potential turning point in the war. And the French think initially that it could be a new turning point to shift the momentum on their side. It's kind of a large miscalculation, they lose very dramatically, and so dramatically that that, that really is what brings to the, war, the war to a close. That battle opens just so as peace talks are starting to open in Geneva between the Vietnamese and the French. So, you know, there's been a movement to trying to think about a diplomatic solution with their defeat at the end then for, you know, it certainly accelerates um, some kind of diplomatic solution, which again, essentially is for the French to entirely bow out. But it also provides the Geneva Settlement, provides the window in some ways for the Americans too, who are keen in some ways to have the French out of the picture, but not at all keen to have Ho Chi Minh ruling Vietnam, who they now see entirely through a kind of anti-communist lens. Mm -hmm. 
And so the way the Geneva Accords are structured, there is to be a period of time that goes by and then elections that will unify the country, you know, on one side or the other. So the Americans immediately begin to pour a huge amount of money into southern Vietnam because there's a division that's also made geographical division at Geneva between the north and the south that Ho Chi Minh regime has the north, and some much more inchoate group has the south, but an inchoate, at least from the American perspective, non-communist group. And Ngo Dinh Diem emerges as the kind of leader in the south, um, through, for complicated reasons that we can, we can leave to the side, I guess. Um, and the Americans just pour money into the ZM government in the hopes of trying to make it viable against Ho Chi Minh. But they're always fearful of having the elections because they believe, rightly speaking, probably, that if they'd had them, that Ho Chi Minh would have won by, you know, a good deal. He's just, he's defeated the French now. Right? Yeah. I mean, you know, he's become a kind of larger than life figure. ZM, you know, had drifted around the United States and Europe for a lot of the French War. I mean, he, he was not a particularly well-known figure um, in Vietnam itself, and also came from a Catholic family, which sort of, again, put him yeah, you know, from an elite family, but on the margins of the elite in some ways, because you know, most people would have been Buddhist. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How, how was it the case that uh, South, Vietnamese, South Vietnam actually formed? Well, during the French War period, the French finally uh, think up something that they call the Baudai solution, which is uh, how do you, how did the French think about forming some kind of Vietnamese state, even if people see it as a puppet state, which is what it was, um, you know, that gives some kind of legitimacy to an indigenous state that can be put up against Ho Chi Minh, and they light on Baudai, who was the last emperor of Vietnam who indeed does form a government in Vietnam, and not a very successful one particularly, and, and there are also all kinds of constraints the French put on him, so it's not a particularly independent government. So after uh, Geneva in 54, it, Baudai is the head of state, and Baudai has to choose essentially another prime minister to, to run the country for him. Baudai tends to be in Khan, sort of, you know, running the country from like a casino. So he's not a really, you know, hands-on on the ground kind of guy. Um, and he chooses ZM. He doesn't like ZM. I, you know, he chooses him in part, I think, because people thought he was manipulatable. Um, people had thought for a long time that the Americans put a lot of pressure on Baudai to make that choice, but that doesn't really seem to be the case. The Americans were good with it, admitted it was done, but they don't seem to have put that much pressure on it. So it's a sort of unlikely thing that brings ZM into power. And then initially, people are skeptical about ZM's abilities because it's just chaos in the South. And, you know, he doesn't have an enviable situation to deal with. I mean, it literally is chaos in the South. And immediately, these religious sectarian groups begin to challenge him. Uh, the Bin Zuen, which is a kind of mafia-like gangster organization that controls a lot of the economy in Saigon, and most of the police force in Saigon begin to challenge him. And there's something that emerges in um, early 1955 called the Sect Crisis. And mm-hmm. these groups all band together in a kind of coalition in a, a military way. They're seeking to overthrow ZM. And initially, this struggle does not go particularly well. And 
people think CM's government may fail, and the Americans even think that they, you know, they may have to sort of pull the plug on him. And then somehow CM pulls it out and defeats the Sachs. And this is sort of April, May 1955. And from that point on, the Americans, at least throughout the 1950s, you know, again, remain very, very firmly supportive of CM, who increasingly is becoming a quite ruthless authoritarian dictatorship. And, you know, the, the sort of constraints on freedom of speech, uh, torture, you know, incarceration, all this kind of stuff that mm-hmm. he's using to stabilize the government. The Americans aren't particularly concerned about in the 1950s, but those are you know, escalating things that a whole variety of groups in Vietnam are alarmed about. The Vietnamese communists are alarmed about it in some ways because the tactics have been very successful. I mean, by the end of the 1950s, the communist movement is looking very small in, in South Vietnam, but it's also producing widespread opposition to CM among people who would want to have nothing to do with the communists, mm-hmm. but who are also, you know, elite or middle-class families who believe, again, the sort of draconian policies that CM has put forward, um, you know, create problems for them as well. Mm-hmm. well why was it the case that um, if, if there was chaos in the South, I certainly believe that there was, that um, Ho and the communists in the North didn't push the war effort to what I would think would be its logical conclusion and simply take the rest of the South? Well, this, this is a point of huge contention between northern and southern communists in this period of time because there's a lot of pushing that's going on from what's left of the southern communist movement. And the reaction in the north is to try to put them off. And there seem to be a couple of things that are going on there. One is that the North, too, is devastated by the war. I mean, it's hard to underestimate how devastating the eight-year civil war is, not just in human terms, but also in terms of infrastructure and Mm -hmm. the economy, agriculture, and otherwise. I mean, you know, it's just devastated. So there's a strong sense among the top leadership about beginning to build socialism in the North first and using that strength to then come back at a certain point in the South. And those are the voices that kind of win the day early on. There also is some pressure coming from uh, the Chinese in this period of time, you know, to do that, that there is, again, a kind of sense about not disturbing sort of larger kind of geopolitical Cold War arrangements at that period of time. I don't know that one would argue that the Chinese made them do it, but what the Chinese are suggesting that they do also seems to fit with their own sensibility about what needs to be done. Mm -hmm. And in the North, again, this is the moment of sort of trying to launch a kind of high socialism in the North, and it's when, you know, the communes and Mm co-ops are, you know, put into effect for the first time in terms of agriculture, you know, these huge campaigns against um, superstitious practices, which essentially are to push, you know, traditional Vietnamese religious forms out and to move a kind of socialist tradition in. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's this enormous political, social, economic, and cultural engineering that's going on in the South in mm-hmm. this period. Of- how... Now, how- I'm sorry. Let me let me ask this question. How, how just to move forward a little bit? Uh, how was um, from the North Vietnamese perspective 
How did they see in the, let's say, the late 50s, early 60s, the United States, and then once the United States decided to intervene in a kind of forceful way, how did they, how did they react? Did they expect this sort of thing, or did they feel it was unfortunate, or did they feel the Americans were being drawn in somehow? Well, they very quickly labeled the ZM regime the Mi'i ZM regime. Mi'i means American in Vietnamese. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that sort of turn against what it is the Americans are doing comes pretty early. I mean, it's that Nizam dictatorship essentially is mm-hmm. sort of the term that's, that's always used for that. So, I mean, I think the transformation in attitudes about the United States are really happening in the late 40s and into the early 50s. You know, that that's when, again, given what what the Chinese choose to do and what the United States chooses to do in the French War, it, it does put them quite firmly, you know, on one side of those blocks. So those efforts to try to create a kind of middle ground pretty much mm-hmm. have disintegrated by that point. Mm-hmm. So by the time you get to the American War itself, I mean, it would be seen as unfortunate in the sense that they would have liked to have put off or forestalled the, direct, the introduction of American ground troops for a long time. So, you know, unfortunate in that way, because they didn't want to take that on. Mm-hmm. But surprising that the American engagement would grow, no. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. So uh, take us through the, the, um, the Vietnamese uh, response, I guess I would say, to the, um, I guess, post-Tonkin Gulf Resolution American escalation of the war. Did, did this frighten them at any point? Did they think that this was uh, going to question their existence, or did they believe that Chinese were going to back them in any case? There's a, there's a basically high level of confidence, you know, that is publicly expressed. And it's hard, again, given what we're able to see, to know what sort of uncertainties or fears people had underneath. But as you talk to people from that period of time, and again, they they too have an investment still in presenting it in a certain kind of way. I don't know that they were fearful so much. I, I think the sensibility that they would ultimately prevail was really deeply felt, and that that was in the end what pushed people through, that they, it would work in the end. Um, but the fact that the Americans do intervene in the ways in which they do pushes them into a, a more and more complicated relationship with China because it, the question becomes, you know, I mean, in the late 50s, the question is, when do you come to the aid of the Southern Communists? And then in the early 1960s, a, when do you begin to accelerate from a kind of political struggle into a military struggle? And they're getting a certain amount of pressure from both the Soviets and the Chinese not to move from political and military. They're getting an enormous amount of pressure from the South to move in a military direction very, very fast. And so there's a kind of, you know, there's a tension there that runs through decision-making really until about 1963. Mm-hmm. And then at that point, you know, it, it's clear that there is going to have to be a kind of accelerating military contribution, which will involve sending northern troops down south. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so that escalation begins to happen around the time that the American escalation begins to happen. And then 
a Chinese policy comes to support those efforts as well. Mm -hmm. So is it reasonably certain then that the Chinese would have come to, this is a point that's much debated, or at least it used to be, uh, that the Chinese would have come to the aid of the, uh, the North had the Americans decided to launch an invasion? That continues to be somewhat controversial. Um, you know, the most interesting scholarship in that regard has really come from the Chinese side rather than the Vietnamese side, because mm -hmm. I think the, um, people have been able to see maybe a little bit more on the Chinese side than the Vietnamese side. And it does seem very clear that Mao was quite worried about what it would mean to be potentially attacked by the Americans through southern China. You know, so that the in a non-sort of ideological or fraternal kind of way, that there was a sort of realpolitik calculation about what was going on as well. You know that that was a vulnerability that would be a kind of problem. Mm -hmm. um, that's on the American side. One thing that you know, Lyndon Johnson felt very deeply was that they couldn't go over, you know, the Geneva Parallel Line because it could potentially trigger Chinese involvement. And here it's the sort of lessons of Korea kind of thing mm -hmm. that John is playing back. Again, cautiously based on what it appears to be coming out of China, it seems that Johnson was right to be worried about that. Though the Chinese very much didn't want it to happen either. There's some kind of, you know, as it happened up in the Cold War, sort of signaling that's going on between the two powers through sort of third-party intermediaries in this period of time that in some ways is an effort on both sides to sort of pull back a little bit. Mm -hmm. okay, I mean, I don't know if that really in the end was the central question. You know, that, the, that once, once that moment was reached and the Americans didn't go farther, then the Chinese didn't go farther, there still, even under the circumstances that played out, was, you know, very substantial Chinese support. And again, a kind of tussle between the Soviets and the Chinese for a while about, you know, who was the better kind of socialist ally. Mm -hmm. So the Vietnamese are getting an awful lot of supplies at that moment of real escalation in 1965 from both sides because each side is trying to kind of outdo the other. Mm -hmm. Now that gets complicated again later in the 1960s with, uh, you know, the, um, the Cultural Revolution and the sort of inability in some ways of the Chinese to control their own country, let alone what's going, you know, back and forth between Vietnam and China. So, I mean, that sort of Sinus, the Sino-Soviet split and Sino-Soviet tensions and individual sort of Soviet and Chinese policy is always something that the Vietnamese communists are having to navigate in uncomfortable and, you know, potentially kind of treacherous ways for them over really the course of the build-up to the American War in the 50s and then the real American War in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, when the, um, the North Vietnamese, during the American War, at its height, um, uh, felt that uh, things weren't exactly going their way, they would occasionally, um, it's my understanding, uh, come, to the, uh, come to the peace tables to talk about some sort of accord, and various accords were made eventually, which ended the war in a, after a fashion. Were those... Um, genuine attempts to create a more stable situation, or were they simply a holding action on the part of the North Vietnamese? Were they a tactic in a longer war, or was there any moment at which the North Vietnamese said, I know this is difficult to answer, but the North Vietnamese said, you know, we could probably just live with things as they are, because this has been really rough. 
Um, it is a difficult question to answer, and this is where, you know, the absence of being able to see really high-level party and diplomatic stuff makes it impossible mm-hmm. to answer in, in the kind of comfortable way that you'd like to answer that mm-hmm. question. So it's speculative, I think, as it has been for many years. And, you know, this is a frustrating thing about saying, you know, you, you wish this many years on, you weren't having to say that it was so speculative. Yeah, no, I understand completely. You did actually have a body of material to... But so, you know, in a speculative kind of way, you know, my sense is that to say that it was all a sham is is to say, to to belittle it too much. Mm -hmm. To say that they believed that they could live with a negotiated settlement that would have left Vietnam divided doesn't strike me really as plausible either. And I think the other thing that you have to kind of throw into that mix is whatever their perceptions are, there's also the fundamental and continuing instability of the South. So whatever the Americans are doing, successful or not, and ultimately, you know, not so successfully, the South Vietnamese state gets more fragile Mm -hmm. and more fractured as the war continues. So from that standpoint, you know, if you're looking at it more from a kind of local standpoint than from a kind of geopolitical standpoint, the belief that in the end they would prevail would not just be kind of, you know, ideological hopefulness. I mean, there'd be a lot of real evidence on the ground that South Vietnam was not sustainable. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope you find these documents, and then we can have you back on the show, and you can give us the definitive <laughs> answer. The, uh, let me ask about one final thing. We've taken up a huge amount of your time. I, uh, we, we've really gone a little bit over, and I'm sorry about that, but I could talk about this for the next two hours, um, and I'm sure you could as well. The, uh, I interviewed a fellow named, um, a historian named, uh, I believe his name is James Wilbank, and, and he wrote a book called Abandoning Vietnam, and he, he was actually a military advisor during the uh, Vietnamization campaign, and uh, I found a, a, an interesting and, and sort of heartening, in a way, uh, parallel between what you said about Vietnamization that period, um, between I guess it's roughly 1970 and 70-something, um, and what he said as somebody who was on the ground and as a historian, and, and you know, he he said that actually Vietnamization brought a, a, a renewed strength to the South Vietnamese um, polity and army, and that there, there might have been, you know. Uh, a chance for it to at least have survived longer than it did, if not to our day. What, what would you say about that? I know you talk about it a little bit in the book. Well, I'm skeptical, I guess. And, you know, these are all what-ifs, so who knows. Yeah. But, you know, this is, this is also the kind of crucial argument that's been made about the surge and has been made about yeah. the turn to counterinsurgency tactics with the Obama administration in Afghanistan. And I think, you know, the lesson of Vietnam that's being drawn is that, well, you know, if we kept it going, that would have worked. Therefore, by doing it here, it's going to work as well. Mm-hmm. And that is a hypothesis, I guess, about what might have happened in Vietnam, but there's certainly no real lesson there, right? We don't, we don't know if it had been different whether mm-hmm. it had. And there's lots of reasons to be somewhat skeptical about that, and I think skeptical because you sort of have to stand back and think in a larger sense about what you're positing by making those arguments. I mean, what you're positing is that you, as the more powerful state, ultimately have the ability to control the political and social dynamics of another state, Mm -hmm. right? 
and maybe you're doing that in partnership with the state, but that, that ultimately it's your policy of dynamization or Iraqization or whatever it is, that you you can impose that on another political community. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the sort of larger lesson about that, if one looks around at a whole variety of cases, not just American cases, but British cases or French cases, or, you know, is that that really isn't so. Mm-hmm. That in fact, the less powerful community or state often has quite a bit of power in those relationships to determine how they will go. Mm-hmm. And it's true that there is more stability for the southern regime in the early 1970s. It's true that the Tet Offensive in 1968 is really a defeat for the Vietnamese communists. So, you know, despite the psychological sort of impact that it has in the United States, what was going on on the ground really was quite different than the way people were perceiving it on the screen. So, you know, those things are all true. But on the other hand, the weakness of the South Vietnamese government and the sort of absence of I don't know, prevailing social norms or political norms that people really, you know, saw as binding them together in some kind of community, they're they're almost non-existent mm-hmm. by 1970s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah. I wonder. You know, yeah. you really wonder. Yeah, I, I do, um, and I talked with... Um, Colonel Wilbank about the, the parallels between what's going on in Afghanistan and Iraq today, and I think he would quite agree with you. I mean, one thing that strikes me is that looking at imperialism or colonialism or foreign interventions, whatever one wants to call them over the very long term, is that um, the uh, indigenous population and usually the anti-colonial population always knows that, uh, at least in the modern period, that uh, the the foreigners are going to leave. If the Iraqis and the Afghans know anything, they know that we will eventually be gone and Mm -hmm. they will still be there and that um, then they will decide their fate. And I I have to kind of think the same thing about the way the North was viewing Vietnamization as a kind of last... It would be interesting to know exactly what they thought, but that, that, you know, this was the first moment in the departure of the Americans, and after the Americans were gone, well, then they would retake control of the situation. I mean, if you look at uh, British... You know, the British didn't, um, you know, over their 300-year, three or 400-year colonial run, they came and stayed generally, and I don't think they ever really expected to do anything else, and I don't think they ever thought that they could set up a government and then leave and have it be friendly. Um, Americans have a very a very odd and, and sort of, uh, you know, it's, it's, almost a, it's, it's, it's almost a denial of reality because every time anybody has ever attempted this, it has failed. Um, that, right. that you go into some place and, 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 and you, you make some advances and do some things, but then eventually, for political reasons, you leave. And once you're not there anymore, um, the situation has its own momentum. I don't, you know, cases of actual state building through, you know, through foreign military intervention are, 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 are few. <laughs> I don't know if there are any. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, you know, it's Germany, it's post-war Germany and post-war Japan, yeah. right, that people point to. But, you know, that, that for a million reasons, there's parallels. Yeah, no, they're not good. 
No, it didn't and, really. You know, even even in the case of the British, I mean, okay, they parked themselves down and they stayed, but you know, in the end, imperialism fell apart, right? Yeah, they, they leave. In the colonial no. world, so yeah, they leave. Even if you stick, I don't know that. I mean, when I think about these questions, the most useful person to me, in a way, is Jim Scott, um, who's a political scientist at Yale, yeah. who wrote, among other books, um, you know, this book, Weapons of the Weak, mm-hmm. and the ways in which those who might be perceived as weak in sort of classical power dynamics, in the end, have enormous power and enormous mm-hmm. control, despite the hegemon. Mm-hmm. And, He's talking about peasant politics in Malaya, but it it resonates wider than that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think that's true, but I, I guess I would also say, again, in the very broad historical perspective that is going back to the Romans and Carthaginians and things, that, you know, imperialism really works uh, when you destroy the other side and colonize their territory. Um, and it has repeatedly, I guess I put worked in quotes, but modern sensibilities won't allow that kind of thing. We, <laughs> we are not going to kill every Vietnamese. We're just not going to do it. Right. And uh, we're not going to kill every Iraqi or every Afghan. Um, the Romans were, were, were quite keen on this sort of thing. Um, and so were the Nazis for that matter. But we, you know, modern sensibilities within that frame, we just simply are not, there cannot be a really effective Imperial, effective again in quotes, um, imperialism. Um, I, it's a it's a sort of stark way to put the issue, but it, it's really that we don't uh, we don't want to do what imperialists, successful imperialists, have to do, and thank God we don't. Um, so I I think yeah, there are some you know it's I, I don't know when we're gonna I don't know when we're gonna I guess they don't talk to enough historians there <laughs> in the White House. Maybe they should talk to you. I think about these things because I you know I. I yeah, I, I very, you know, as I say, my uncle fought in Vietnam, and he was all for the cause. And it, but it's, uh, you know, it's a very, it's a very disturbing thing to, I think, for a superpower to be told you can't do this. It's just not, yeah. it's not conceivable, and you're going to have to live with a situation that you're not like very much. So anyway, yeah. and it's, you know, it's a little dispiriting that the Obama administration uh, has embraced some of these ideas as well. You know, one might have hoped that if a break was going to come, it would come there. Well, yeah, then, then you know, but then the problem is, you know, what, what Will Bank pointed out is, is that, you know, you build clients in the state that you've invaded, and if you leave them, well, they're going to be in very bad shape. Uh, and, and, you know, that has some, there's certain, certain, certain force to that argument as well. So it becomes paradox on paradox on paradox and, and dilemma on dilemma on dilemma, and you don't have any good choices left. And we don't have, as far as I can see, we have no good choices now um, uh, in, in Afghanistan or Iraq. We're eventually going to leave, and they're going to take control, and that's what's going to happen. I, I, historians don't like to make predictions, but I will, I'll stand by that one. You can talk to me in... Ten years, and we'll see if that's what happens. <laughs> I'm telling you what, we will not be there, and they will take control. That's what's going to happen. So anyway, well, uh, Mark, you know, we've taken up a huge amount of your time, actually much more than I, I, I expected or even asked you for. Let me ask you our traditional final question here on New Books in History, and uh, that is this. What are you working on now? What's your next project? Well, I've taken something of a break from Vietnam. I'm um, in the middle of a project that's trying to think about the place of the United States in global human rights politics after 1945. And, you know, Vietnam enters in here and there, but largely it's trying to think about where sort of global norms, global advocacy, and global sort of juridical practices have come from, and then the place that America played in all of that. And it 
an effort in some ways to sort of de-exceptionalize the American position in mm -hmm. all of that. And certainly after the last administration, maybe you don't need to de-exceptionalize the United States all that much. But there, yeah. but there has been a sense that somehow the United States is synonymous with all this. And it, it, it's a more complex kind of global and transnational story. And that, yeah. that's the one I'm trying to tell. Well, we actually interviewed a fellow, I can't remember his name right now, who wrote a book called The Myth of American Exceptionalism. I'm, I, I apologize for not being able to remember his name. But it's, that, that is, again, something else that I'm very interested in. So I guarantee you when you're done with that book, if you will uh, accede to this, I will uh, ask you to be back on. Well, that sounds great. Okay, great. Well, um, Mark, thank you very much for being on the show, and uh, have a good fourth, okay? Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thank you. All right. Take care now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Mark Philip Bradley about his book, Vietnam at War. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.